Before I get into this episode, I have to tell you about Making Marketing. It's a weekly conversation with the people who are leading and innovating the world of marketing, be it data, brand safety, transparency, relationship with platforms, or emerging markets like cannabis. These leaders are at the front lines. Some of our recent guests include David Dancer of MedMen, Droga 5's Neil Heyman, and Vimbalbak Gupta of Equinox. Tune in on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to Digiday Live, our podcast where we bring you the best sessions from our many summits around the world. I'm Aditi Sangal, and today I'm bringing you a session from the Digiday Media Buying Summit. As much as YouTube and other social platforms say they're committed to brand safety, things end up going awry and campaigns can get caught in the middle. Enter the brand safety officer, a role that some agencies have created to get ahead of protecting media investment. Hear from Joe Barone, managing partner of Brand Safety Americas for Group M, about why establishing the role should be prioritized and what the future looks like for the brand safety officer. Uh, brand safety is very important to me, of course, because it pays my mortgage. So I'm glad you felt that it's important to you as well. Um, at Group M, the brand safety practice for digital is about 10 years old. But brand safety has been an issue in the advertising business for as, as long as there's been advertising. Um, one of my first jobs as, as an assistant media planner was creating program preference lists for primetime television for a packaged goods client based on demographic delivery and content. So what we do is not new, uh, but how we apply it in the digital space has become more and more important. So I want to start with, with uh, an earth-shattering Finding. I'm the specialist, I'm the expert, so I have to bring you things you haven't thought of before, right? So is everybody sitting down? The lights are a little sharp, so I can't tell, but I want to make sure you're all sitting down because this is going to rock your world. And if you've seen me present before, you know what it's going to say, but if you haven't, be ready. This is what we believe. An ad should be seen by a real human who is in our client's target in an appropriate contextual environment. There it is, something to take away from Austin this week. Now, I know that doesn't really sound very earth-shattering, uh, and it sounds like something that should be table stakes. And more and more, our clients are expecting this to be table stakes. But in the digital ecosystem, some, it's sometimes difficult, if not impossible, to deliver on this objective. But this is the mantra that guides everything that we do. Now, when I think about brand safety, I like to think about the story of the Cathedral of Santa Maria di Fiore in Florence, uh, and this very famous story of Brunelleschi's dome. When Arnolfo de, de Cambrio started building this cathedral in 1296 AD, he had no clue how to put that dome on there. It took 165 years for them to finish this cathedral and put the dome and figure out the technology to put the dome in place. And the reason I think this relates to brand safety is because we're on a journey, hopefully not 165 years worth of journey, uh, but we use the technology that we have the way they used the church that they had. They didn't wait for the dome to be in place before they used the church to celebrate mass. Um, and we need to use the technology that we have while the architects and dreamers are continuing to build the capability and making it better and better so that we can do a better job of protecting our clients. But very much so, it is a work in progress, no doubt. Now, 
um, there's a very famous expression in our business that data is the new oil. And the, the earliest reference I could find to it was from a gentleman named Clive Humby, who uh, invented the Tesco Club card, one of the first loyalty cards. And he was quoted to say data is the new oil in, in 2006. But I don't believe that's true in marketing communications. Um, the oil that drives our industry is consumer attention and engagement. Without consumer attention and engagement, we have an inert engine. We have an empty promise. We have no ability to really impact our client's business. Uh, and when we think of brand safety, and we think of all the things that we do that waste this precious resource uh, in terms of ads that aren't seen, investment that's wasted, uh, and things that we do that literally annoy consumers to the point that they use ad blockers. So we always have to keep in mind that the ultimate objective is to engage that consumer. Now, thus the discussion of the brand safety officer, uh, which is what the, uh, the main thrust of this presentation this morning is about, the idea of a brand safety officer. And again, as I mentioned at the top, my mortgage is very important to me. So the role of the brand safety officer is one I very much approve of. Um, when we think about what brand safety officers do, um, I work for a gentleman named John Montgomery, who was the first person in our industry to have a full-time role in this space. And these are some of the highlights that we think about. Um, the first thing we talk about, and anyone who was in the brand safety breakout group, which is basically everybody in this room who wasn't in the programmatic breakout group um, over this morning and yesterday evening, we talked a lot about the fact that there's really no guarantees. When we think about social media, when we think about the distributed digital ecosystem, we can never guarantee to a client that we can deliver to them 100% brand safe environment. Uh, our job, uh, basically, is to inform our people and client about risks and equip them with the tools to mitigate those risks. And then very importantly, to gauge the progress that we've made in the space. Another element that we've begun to talk about is the idea of quality. If we can get a quality environment, quality inventory from quality publishers, ads that are seen by real humans in appropriate contextual environments, of course those ads sell for our clients better than ads that don't deliver on those objectives. So it's important to remember that brand safety is linked directly to inventory quality and client results. Now, I, I talk about brand safety across the Americas for Group M. So whether I'm in Los Angeles or San Francisco or Montreal or Atlanta or Mexico City or Toronto or New York, uh, clients have become very educated on this process. And they always ask the same questions. We start out with questions like, you mean to tell me my ads aren't being seen? You mean to tell me that uh, bots are clicking on my ads? And these can be very uncomfortable conversations when the clients are incredulous, demanding answers, demanding solutions, and in some cases, even demanding rebates. And these questions and discussions come up in English. They come up in Spanish. They come up in French. And anywhere else we present, clients want to know what we're doing as an industry and as agency representatives to resolve these issues for them. Um, in fact, some of our largest clients and some of the largest clients in the space have been very vocal about their demands for brand safety and mitigating what Mark Pritchard likes to call, or at least one time called, the crappy media supply chain. Uh, and earlier this year, the World Federation of Advertisers, which is sort of the global ANA, uh, released a global media charter that was very much about improving brand safety 
and pushing the viewability guidelines to 100% of pixels from the current 50. So we now live in a world where there's really no more you-mean-to-tell-me meetings. Uh, clients aren't asking anymore what the issue is. Clients are asking what the solution is. And when we look at some recent polls from, from eMarketer, uh, it's interesting to see that clients see their own responsibility. In fact, when asked who's responsible most for brand safety, they answered, we are. We ourselves as brands. Uh, and that's an encouraging fact, because it means that we're doing this together as a community to solve these problems. Um, also, it's interesting to see the number of very specific uh, issues that they identify. So this isn't a nebulous thought. We have to get our arms around this brand safety thing. Clients want very specific things. They want third-party third -party monitoring so that publishers aren't marking their own homework. They want to reduce the risk of showing up on the front page of the Wall Street Journal. They want more transparency from suppliers and the uh, technology companies in the digital supply chain. So there are very specific issues that we can tackle together as a community. Now, we're talking about brand safety, and different people have different definitions of exactly what brand safety is. So is brand safety helping an airline advertiser avoid a plane crash? Sure it is. That's absolutely part of it. But we believe that it's much more than that as well. So at Group M, we think of brand safety in these three pillars. We think of the financial risk, the reputational risk, and the legal risk that our clients face. And we work with technology partners and build best practices to ameliorate risk, ameliorate, that's a tough word, especially 9 o'clock in the morning, ameliorate the risk across these elements of, of the brand safety spectrum. Um, we all know what's happening with viewability. We talked this morning uh, with our brand safety breakout group. We're in year six of what was intended to be a three-year plan towards viewability. And believe it or not, six years in to the ability to measure and optimize and trade on viewable, we still see about 40% of all ads as not being viewable. Um, fraud or invalid traffic is a financial risk to clients. Delivering out of demo, we've been buying demo delivery in television for 50 years. And it's been less than five years that we've had access to demo delivery in digital. And still very often, buys are made and guaranteed on total two plus audiences, uh, which makes TV buyers laugh at us, believe me. Um, probably the most important element in the financial risk category is third party tracking. Um, if we buy media from Google, and Google tells us how much we got, and Google tells us that what we got is good, that's a really bad thing. We need to separate the media buy from the verification and the, and the measurement of it. Nielsen governs the TV upfront, but Nielsen has never sold one impression of media. Um, in terms of reputational risk, there's been a lot of focus in the past year or so on content environment, content adjacencies. How do you avoid being that brand on the front page of the Wall Street Journal in the article about jihadi content on YouTube? So we have quite a robust practice in helping clients avoid that that type of environment. Um, it's less of a financial risk. Um, when the London Times ran an article saying that big brands fund terror, the amount of money that went from those campaigns to the owners of those channels was in the hundreds of pounds or hundreds of euros, not thousands or tens of thousands. The damage that was done was the reputational risk to shareholders seeing those brands being associated with that type of content. We also think of user experience as part of the reputational risk. If you think about that, um, we, we talked at the top about 
consumer engagement and attention. And we live in a world where ad blockers are an immediate risk to publishers and an immediate option for consumers who get pissed off by the types of ads we run. Um, so we work with the Coalition for Better Ads to make sure that we don't run on sites that support pop-ups or sticky ads or full-page interstitials or autoplay video with sound or any of the other types of ad formats that drive people to use ad blockers. From the legal risk standpoint, um, we're all aware of what's happening in the consumer privacy space. The Ad Choices program has been in the US for several years. GDPR has really raised the stakes, not only in Europe, but in other parts of the world. California is following suit with some legislation that goes into effect uh, in January of 2020. Other states and the Fed are now looking at legislation. Um, and legislation usually stifles innovation, um, but we might be at a point where it's going to be hard to avoid. Anti-piracy is a big part of our practice, and this is one that our, our IP rights producing clients, if you think of a movie studio or a music producing company, gets very concerned about illegal streaming. But there's also counterfeit goods. Uh, so we maintain some partnerships that allow us to evaluate sites that are basically content pirates or counterfeiters so that we don't give ad money to them in programmatic buys or network buys. And finally, our terms and conditions are very aggressive. We make sure that all of our clients have the right not to pay for anything that's deemed inappropriate for those, for those teams, for those brands. So others might say some of these do or do not belong in the brand safety spectrum. But when we think of our practice of brand safety, this is, this is the full spectrum of how we look at it. So the whipping boys at the table have been YouTube and Facebook. Um, YouTube has some very well-documented problems. One of the things we talked about, and I think Chris Davis is going to talk about it when they do the readout of the brand safety breakout group, um, but there's somewhere in the neighborhood of 800,000 or so monetized channels on YouTube. It's impossible for any managed service or self-service provider to help us evaluate all the content on all those channels. Um, but we do the best we can, for sure. And one of the things we've started to do this year is many of our clients are going beyond brand safety. And as an agency community, we're starting to go on beyond brand safety and move more to the concerns about social responsibility. These platforms, whether or not they're allowing monetization on some of this content, the content just has no place in, in, the, in the environment in digital. Um, so we're not limiting our concerns to just keeping my client away from the bad stuff. We want to make sure YouTube is working to get rid of the bad stuff. And to their credit, they've come a long way. We have a lot of third-party measurement on, in YouTube that we didn't have two or three years ago. We have companies like OpenSlate that helps us develop a whitelist that we execute. We have Integral and Double Verify, soon to be Grapeshot as well. Um, we have the MCNs that can help identify premium content. So there is some movement, but we need more movement. Uh, at this point in time, through the DBM programmatic platform, you can block any type of inventory for brand safety issues except YouTube. So YouTube allows no blocking of any kind. And filtering pre-bid and blocking post-bid are our most effective tools for avoiding both fraud and non-brand safe environments. So we need to keep pushing on that. Not to let Facebook escape. They've had their problems with uh, legislators, with privacy, and more, more recently, with illegal content. 
Um, there's a lot of opioid content available on Facebook and Instagram, and they just don't seem to be able to get rid of it. So how are we structured? This is the Group M brand safety team. Not all of us are pictured here because not everybody submitted their picture. But we basically have regional teams in the Americas, in Europe, and in APAC. We also have a dedicated professional on EU legislative issues. We have a dedicated professional on privacy. And we have a dedicated professional on um, custom development work with our, our viewability and brand safety vendors. And I'd like to say I brought a sizzle reel, but it's brand safety. So I, I wouldn't really call it sizzle. So it's more of a video message from Group M. That's the cue. It's just the people you see on this screen talking about brand safety and how great we are, but it's a little livelier than looking at pictures of us. But I think we're not going to get it. So anybody who really, oh, here it is. Brand safety is incredibly important in our world now. CMOs were polled at the beginning of this year about their biggest priorities for 2018. Brand safety was in the top five. So this is a real concern for them. We want clients to have confidence in the work that we do. And that confidence is based on our ability to define the environments that they feel are supportive of their brand. Ultimately, our role as a brand safety team is to ensure that our clients only invest where their ad has a fair opportunity to be seen by a real person in a safe environment for the brand. We try and limit risks for clients in the digital supply chain. One of them is reputational risk, which I think gets clients most worried. The types of content that we seek to avoid is monetizing criminals in many cases. We are concerned about making sure that ads uh, are seen by a human in a viewable environment, because if they're not, then it's wasted exposure. And then the last one are legal risks, making sure that uh, ads are privacy compliant and that GDPR compliant. Consumers, especially younger ones, are very well aware of the impact that brands can have on social developments, etc. So if they see a brand funding inadvertently that kind of content, they can make a choice and just divert to, to a competitor which is more brand safety savvy. We're very unique at Group M that we have a global team looking after brand safety. We're here to answer all the difficult questions that clients may have. Little sizzle, right? Not, not too sizzly. So what do we do? Uh, we drive education of our internal teams and our clients. We drive adoption of our best practices. We try to provide buy-side influence in the industry, uh, whether it's combined with the 4As or individually as Group M. And we engage with our clients as needed. And we engage with groups like this to bring the message. Uh, and again, representing sort of a buy-side perspective in this space. Uh, we work with, with all the uh, acronyms in the industry. The Media Rating Council, probably the most important group that we work with. They write the guidelines, conduct the audits, so that uh, we know that Moat knows what they're doing because they've gone through a very detailed audit with the EY auditors that work under the auspices of the Media Rating Council. We talked about the Coalition for Better Ads, which is dedicated to uh, reducing ad blocking. The Brand Safety Institute is a new group growing out of TAG, IB Tech Lab, the, the Advertiser Protection Bureau of the 4As. 
So we engage with all these groups. We, rec we represent Group M and all these groups. And we make sure that our internal teams understand what the implications are of the processes and practices developed by these organizations. So where are we? Just, just a quick rundown. Um, YouTube has improved their brand care controls. They're detecting negative content quick, more quickly. And they've eliminated many thousands of monetized channels. Uh, we know that we can reduce fraud significantly if we use a tag-certified supply chain. Um, Chrome is working with the Coalition for Better Ads to literally block all ads uh, to sites that still use those negative ad formats. Uh, the Forays Advertiser Protection Bureau has defined a common brand safety floor. Now, there's a the concept of brand suitability. Uh, if, you're, if you have an R-rated movie, you might run on slightly more violent YouTube videos than a packaged goods marketer. But there's stuff that nobody ever wants to run on. That's the floor. And once we identify that floor, we need to make sure all the verification vendors measure it the same way. Um, we've expanded our display and native video viewability metrics to take into account the changes in user experience from a desktop to the mobile world that we live in now. Um, we've built a YouTube whitelist in English and Spanish. And we've even issued our own data protection agreement where we work with publishers around the world to be compliant with GDPR. The work is not done, which is good because my mortgage is not done. As I said, the digital landscape has evolved. Uh, when we created the viewability guidelines and practice at Group M, we were in very much a desktop sort of pre-roll video world. Uh, we, we're now in a mobile feed-based world. Native has changed the way people consume. So we've created some new metrics to help us measure different characteristics of video. Um, we have not been able to stamp out hate speech, um, although there is more focus on eliminating it, it still exists. Um, one of the biggest concerns that we have is the problems that ad-supported legitimate news are having in their existential battle with both the duopoly, with fake news providers, and also with ad blockers. Um, there's a real issue that some clients just say, avoid news altogether. If we can't avoid the bad news, just avoid news. Uh, and that's not good if organizations like CNN, The New York Times, The Washington Post have trouble monetizing. Um, illegal content is difficult to eliminate. We talked about the walled gardens rejecting our best tools. And 40% of ads are still non-viewable. So we have a process globally where we monitor compliance and report back to the individual teams in those geographies. And this is sort of a little inside baseball on how we do it operationally. Um, there's a giant spreadsheet that lives behind this summary. So just to, to wrap up on two quick points, one of the things that is very important as we talk about engagement with clients and making sure clients understand the process and their role in the process, we have what we call a brand safety assessment. And we ask clients to start by deciding where they live on this continuum. If you're very risk tolerant, if you're willing to accept some risk, then you're going to say performance is the most important factor in your media selection process. Of course, you want some brand safety, but performance is the most important element. If you're in the middle, you might say, well, now wait a minute. Performance is important, but what am I giving up in terms of environment? And then finally, on the low risk side, you'll have clients that might say, nope, no matter what, we want to be brand safe. Give us 100% brand safety every time you can. And then we go into the strategies and tactics that align to these risk levels. So if you tell a client, well, that means you won't be able to run 
with a certain publisher because they don't accept blocking from Double Verify. And they might say, well, that's an endemic. We have to run with that publisher. Then you have that conversation with a client about the balance between risk and brand safety and helping those clients understand that these aren't decisions that, as an agency, we make on our own, but we make together with them. Uh, and finally, just a, a, a message from our advertising assurance group at the forays. We've built the brand safety floor, which we've issued press on. You should have seen that press, hopefully. I think it was picked up by Digiday. Brian, I'm not sure. Um, and we also are working on a brand suitability framework to help clients with sort of a planning exercise to help them identify where on that risk tolerance continuum they might be. Because at the end of the day, our objective, uh, well, I forgot about what's next. I'll get to what our objective at the end of the day is in a minute. I forgot one slide. Um, what's next, what we're working on now, there's an open source SDK that's looking to um, reduce discrepancies in the view viewability space. We talked this morning about the fact that in some for some campaigns, you might find 30 or 40% discrepancy between two different viewability vendors. So the open source SDK is going to fix that. The MRC is looking at 100% of pixels as a standard instead of the current 50. We're working on a location verification audit to help identify whether or not the data that we buy that's location oriented is actually accurate. Um, we, we're working with companies that can help us identify fraudulent followers. If, you want, if you're a new mom that wants to sign up a contract with Kimberly Clark to be an influencer for KC, you can go buy followers on eBay. And if you have 100 followers, we probably won't hire you. But if you have 10,000 followers, now you're looking good. Um, so that's become a little cottage industry of fraud. Um, digital literacy, increased consumer control, these are all things that we're working on. And ultimately, as I said, the objective is turning that client frown upside down. That's what I got. OK, Joe, thank you. Um, so I think it's been about 18 months, a little over 18 months since the Times had the brands funding terror. Um, big, yeah. you, you showed it there, uh, headline. Um, <clears throat> And they rolled out a series of stories um, after that, and I, it got a lot of attention on, on YouTube. How much progress on a scale of one to five has YouTube made in the past 18 months? Um, one to five, I'll give them a 2.4. OK, that's uh, failing. They've, yeah, they've, well, yeah, OK, I'll say that. They've made a lot of progress. Um, what they haven't done is open up the opportunity for us to use independent third-party measurement. They've created the capability to use third-party vendors like Integral and Double Verify, but it's not truly independent. The, the operational methodology of how they work with them is different than it would be on the open web. Mm -hmm. And I think you had, I don't know if you said it in here, but you did in the working group, there's about 800,000 YouTube channels that are monetized. That's a rough estimate. They won't, tell, they won't give you an exact number, but that's the best we can estimate, yeah. Okay, so if YouTube was here, you, what would be your message as far as what they could do to make your clients feel a little bit better? Independent third-party measurement, blocking and filtering, pre-bid blocking and filtering. Um, they've been very accommodating in our whitelist process, which has been, which has been what got them to the 2.4. So they're moving along. They're moving in the right direction. Adoption of the open SDK, so we won't have API usage for viewability because the API, is, the API really bakes the numbers. 
before it gets to mode or double verify. Mm -hmm. So there's, there's a laundry list that they have from us. They, it's a checklist that we share with them quite often and update. Mm -hmm. Now, how many clients, because a lot of clients profess to be shocked. You know, it was a lot of like gambling in Casablanca situation where they were like, I'm shocked. Yeah. I'm, I'm running my ads on like hundreds of thousands of, uh, of sites, and some of these are showing up in places I don't want. I, I can't believe this. Um, but some clients said, we're pulling out of YouTube. Do you have clients that just have not gone back? Um, at this point, there may be a couple of clients that have not gone back at all. But most of them uh, pulled out sort of as a message. And that message was heard. Um, so we have things like the whitelist capability, which has given many clients the comfort to go back. But I will say that once you start looking at other solutions, um, the level of investment has not returned to where it originally was. So we have clients that have gone back because there's a need for that type of reach in the digital marketplace, uh, especially in terms of ameliorating your video CPMs on linear television. Um, but if they were spending you know, 25% of their budget on YouTube, maybe now it's 15. Right. Uh, one other thing is on fake news, the real fake news, not what uh, our president uh, calls fake news. Um, the propaganda sites, conspiracy sites like Infowars. Mm -hmm. Does Group M have a blanket policy on that? Or are there instances where you have clients that are OK and even right for, say, Infowars? Um, Infowars is, is an interesting example. Um, we, the answer is we have a blanket policy, but there are occasional exceptions to that policy. We do have some issues-based clients that target right or left-wing political uh, operatives, whether it's um, lobbyists or actual sitting elected officials. So if your target audience is right-wing senators, well, right-wing media reaches those senators. So it might not be appropriate for a soap marketer, but if you're an issues-based marketer and that's your narrow target and you're going into it with your eyes open, so we can't have a you-need-to-tell-me moment because that client knows yeah. he's buying exactly what he's buying. Um, so then, then we would, you know, at the end of the day, we're agents. So our job is to inform our clients, to educate our clients, make sure they know exactly what they're doing, and if they choose to do that, we'll issue the insertion order. Okay, uh, I have time for uh, one question or two. Anyone? Yes. Hi. Um, if you had a pie chart and had um, the human target audience and contextual environment, what percentage would you assign to each in terms of importance? Well, they're very different risks. Financially, there's no doubt the biggest risk is non-viewable, because 40% of ads are non-viewable. Now, most non-viewable ads tend to be lower quality, so it's not, it's not equivalent to wasting 40% of a client's money. But on a given campaign, we might be wasting 20% of a client's money if they're not trading or optimizing unviewable. That's a lot of money. Um, so the biggest risk by far is viewability. The contextual risk is more the front page of the London Times, the Wall Street Journal, the stockholder, the CEO walks down to the CMO's office, how did this happen? So it's harder to quantify the reputational risk. Will consumers not use a particular ice cream because they were on a, adjacent to a YouTube video or adjacent to a negative piece of content on Facebook? There's a lot of research that says that consumers are intelligent and they know that marketers aren't responsible for the content in which they run. Um, we don't act on that. We act on the higher level of brand safety. 
But in terms of our client investment, by far, viewability is the biggest issue. OK. Anyone else? OK. Joe, final question. Hey, hey Joe. Joe. Hi, Joe. How are you? Um, you had mentioned this brand safety assessment that you do with your clients. I was curious to know what's the uh, distribution between high, medium, and low. Like, does everybody say that they're, you know, high risk or low risk, or is there even? When you start, when you first propose those three questions, every client is low risk tolerant all the way over on the right. I want complete brand safety. Then you explain, well, that means you'll have to drop all your Snapchat filters because we can't control what people do with a Snapchat filter. So that's a brand safety risk. And they're like, well, wait a minute, we get a lot of engagement out of those. Okay, and they start to move more towards the middle. So if you think about the red, yellow, green, most of our clients are sort of halfway between the green box to halfway between the yellow box in that medium risk to low risk area. Then we have a few clients, very performance oriented, or let's say movie studios, for instance, that tend to be much more towards the high risk uh, part of the spectrum. But by far, the concentration would be within the low risk area. Thank you. Okay, cool. Thank you so much, Joe. Appreciate Thank it. You. Thanks for having me. All right. Thank you guys. Thank you all for listening. I'm Aditi Sango. Did you like the show? Rate us and leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you're listening to this podcast. You can also write to me or tweet at me. I'm at Aditi Sango and my email is Aditi at Digiday. I'll be back soon with another episode.